This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Uhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Russia is trying to indicate that it's not isolated internationally, that it has international military reach. And South Africa, by agreeing to hold these exercises or going ahead with them, is uh, feeding into that narrative. That's Stephen Gruz, the head of the Russia-African program at the South African Institute of International Affairs. Details coming up. Also, Malawi's president fires the country's director of public prosecution. Gambia's vice president has died of illness in India. And a mob, angry at the killing of a Catholic priest in Nigeria, torched a police station. We have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Police in Nigeria's central Niger state say a mob, angry at the killing of a Catholic priest, torched a police station, other buildings and cars, and threw stones at police yesterday, causing a number of injuries. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. State police spokesman Wasiu Abiodun said authorities are responding to the situation and have deployed reinforcements to the Paikoro district where the incident took place. He said the mob, including youths and women, marched from the slain priest's residence to a divisional police station and set it ablaze. Abiodun spoke to Vioe via phone. We have sent reinforcements there, the security men are on ground and where uh, investigation has commenced. So that is just what is on ground now. Uh, further development will be made known to the public. It is not clear how many people were injured during Tuesday's protests, but eyewitnesses told local media that police officers dispersed the demonstrators forcefully. The protesters blamed the police for not responding promptly to distress calls when the armed men attacked the cleric, Father Isaac Achi. On Sunday, armed men burned Achi inside his home in Paikoro after failing to break in. The attackers also shot at another priest fleeing the scene, but he survived. The motive behind Achi's killing remains unknown, but the incident triggered widespread criticism from religious groups, including the Christian Association of Nigeria, or CAN. CAN this week said authorities must decisively put an end to attacks on churches. In a separate incident on Sunday, gunmen attacked a church in northwest Katsina State and abducted nine people, including two children. In May, heavily armed men attacked a Catholic church in the southwestern town of Owa and killed 40 worshippers. Insecurity is a major problem bedeviling Africa's most populous nation, weeks ahead of general elections scheduled for February 25th. Timothy Obezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Gambia's vice president has died of illness in India, according to a statement by President Adama Baro. 65-year-old Badara Juf was appointed vice president last year and was previously education minister from 2017 to 2022. Al Jazeera says he left about three weeks ago to seek treatment and had not been seen for months before the trip. 
Juf was the fourth deputy to serve under Baro since his win in 2016 against former strongman Yaya Jame and the second since the president was re-elected in 2021. Juf previously worked in the civil service and later in the World Bank as an education specialist for West and Central Africa. Cameroon's government has deployed troops to a village on the border with Nigeria after clashes between Cameroonian separatists and Nigerian herders left at least 12 people dead. Cameroonian officials say the fighting broke out after herders who crossed the border in search of food for their cattle refused to pay taxes the rebels demanded. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Marua, Cameroon. Cameroon's military says it deployed at least 100 troops early Wednesday to Gayama, a village on the western border with Nigeria, after clashes between separatists and Nigerian herders. Abdullahi Aliyu is the highest-ranking government official in Menchum, the administrative unit in charge of Gayama. Aliyu says the fighting broke out six days ago when separatists stopped Nigerian herders who had crossed the border in search of pasture for their cattle and ordered them to pay tax. He says when the herders refused to pay, the rebels killed two of them on the spot. Aliyu says the surviving herders, who are ethnic Fulani from Taraba and Benue states, fled home and organized a counterattack. He says the herders came back in huge numbers, attacked separatist camps, and killed at least four fighters. Aliyu says six civilians, including the traditional ruler of Monkep village and his son, were killed in the clashes. Authorities say at least 20 civilians were injured and the herders killed scores of cattle and torched houses. The Roman Catholic Church in Menchum says scores of civilians fled Gayama and neighboring villages to avoid getting caught in clashes between separatists and the arriving troops. The governor of Cameroon's northwest region, Deben Chofo, says civilians should not fear the military. Speaking by telephone from the region's capital, Bamenda, he says villagers should help the troops by denouncing rebels hiding in their communities. The future is bright, provided we are united against the agent of chaos that are trying to hijack our youth. The forces are bringing themselves close to the population. That's the reason why, compared to last year, things are becoming more and more normal and normal, even if you still have some hot spots. Chofo said Cameroon's military would protect civilians in all border villages. Separatists on social media including WhatsApp and Facebook, acknowledged they have been battling Nigerian herders who they say should respect their orders. This is not the first time Cameroon's Anglophone separatists have attacked Nigerians along the border. Last June, villagers in western Akwaye town said armed men believed to be rebels carried out a series of attacks that killed at least 30 people, including five Nigerian merchants. The separatists have been fighting since 2017 to carve out an English-speaking state from French-speaking majority Cameroon. The UN says the conflict has left 
more than 3,500 people dead and 750,000 displaced. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Marwa, Cameroon. Khalifa Haftar, the commander of the self-proclaimed Libyan National Army, asked the director of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, William Burns, for more communication and support from the American side when they met last week. Haftar also asked the U.S. communications in Libya not be limited to the Tripoli-based government of Abdul Hamid Dabiba. Burns urged Haftar to start dealing with the National Unity Government and allow it to operate from Libya's eastern regions to preserve what he called the unity of the country's executive institutions and keep the divide from widening. Wolfgang Postai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, discussed these developments with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shenawi. Regarding Hefner's contacts with Prime Minister Dabeba, there are still rumors about the behind-the-scenes deal between the two of them in connection with the sacking of the former National Oil Corporation chair Mustafa Sanala last summer. And in this context, Hefner allegedly agreed to keep calm against receiving payments from the government of national unity for the LNA, much to the displeasure of many in Misrata. So there are already contacts between Hefner and Dabeba. There is deep frustration in the east of Libya not only among the ranks of the Libyan National Army, about what they believe is a Tripoli and Misrata-centric American foreign policy towards Libya. They actually feel forgotten by Washington, although they say and they believe their fight against radical Islamists in the Syrianica was also in the interests of the Americans. And although they are cooperating with them on counterterrorism in Fezzan, many people in the East have the perception that no one in Washington really cares about their neglect by the governments in Tripoli ever since 2012, ever since the American consulate in Benghazi was attacked by the Islamists. And they are extremely disappointed about this. How important is LNA's role in combating terrorism for the United States? The United States are still very much concerned that Libya South is a playground for various terrorist groups destabilizing the whole of the Sahel region. There is the Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb, there is ISIS, and there are also various rebel groups from Sudan and from Chad. One could say Libya's southern border is a no-man's land, and it is de facto a safe haven, which is used as a logistic and training base, as well as a staging area for attacks in neighboring countries. So the Americans certainly want to do, and they are doing as much as they can about it. And they have realized that the Dabeba government has next to no influence there. Hefta and his Libyan National Army have a limited influence, but they are far away from being able to stabilize the whole of Libya's south, which means Fezzan, or not only Fezzan, but also the eastern district of Kufra. Nevertheless, I would say the Libyan National Army is right now the only one option for the Americans and also for the French to have a cooperation partner in order to fight terrorism in the south of Libya. Dabeba told Burns that his government supports the American position rejecting the presence of Russian Wagner mercenaries in Libya. What impact would that position have on Haftar's hosting Wagner group in eastern Libya? I would say none, nothing at all. This was the American position ever since. And Hefner is, of course, very much aware of this. Wagner has reduced its presence in Libya significantly, as the mercenaries are also desperately needed in Ukraine. But this is more about ground combat troops, and their support for the Libyan National Army Air Force remains pretty much unchanged. Actually, the Russian Wagner group provides the backbone of Khalifa Haftar's air force and air defense, at least until a sufficient number of Libyan pilots, technicians, and so on is properly trained in Russia. And this will take probably more than two years, I would say, 
at least three or four years. And the Americans are certainly not happy about this. With regard to the significance of Wagner for the LNA and, and, and also for others in the region, their most important role is to act as a tripwire in the case of an attack by Turkish-supported forces from Tripolitania. They should delay, together with the Libyan National Army, the attacking forces, until the Egyptian armed forces are able to intervene. One must remember that Egypt's president al-Sisi declared a red line west of Sirte, and the Egyptians would certainly need some time until they would be able to intervene with military means in Libya. Altogether, I would say this is some kind of balance of forces. The Wagner forces are somehow balancing the Turkish troops who are supporting the Dababa government. Just today, there are again talks of the 5 plus 5 Joint Military Commission in Sirte. This is a body consisting of five high-ranking officers from the West and from the East under the mediation from UN Special Representative Batigui about the withdrawal of all foreign soldiers and mercenaries, including Wagner and including the Turks. But to be honest, I doubt that there will be any concrete outcome. That was uh, Wolfgang Poshta, a former Austrian military attaché in Libya, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note, we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. Human Rights Watch is urging Rwanda to release an opposition politician accused of tarnishing the country's image. On December 16th, the High Court sentenced Teofile Intirutua, who is a member of the unregistered Dalfa Umurinzi opposition party, to seven years in prison. He was convicted of spreading false information or harmful propaganda with intent to cause a hostile international opinion against the Rwandan government. His arrest follows the stabbing death of a man at his shop in 2020. Intirutwa was acquitted of murder charges but told the journalist that the incident was an assassination attempt with a case of mistaken identity. Intirutwa says he and the dead man had similar first names, and he accused the police and military of killing the wrong person. Human Rights Watch says the government uses the penal code to criminalize freedom of expression and demonstrates the high price of getting involved in politics. Human rights activists want Rwanda to release Intirutwa and repeal this provision and revise the penal code in line with international and regional human rights standards. South Africa plans to conduct joint military exercises with the Chinese and Russian navies off its east coast next month, despite the Kremlin's ongoing war on Ukraine. The opposition Democratic Alliance has slammed the decision, saying it means that the contrary Uh, To its neutral stance on Russia's Ukraine war, South Africa's ruling National Congress Party has effectively sided with Moscow. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. The China-Russia-South Africa drills, named Operation Mozzie, which means smoke, are to take place off Durban from February 17 to 26. 
While South Africa has held joint naval exercises with Russia in the past, in 2019, these latest ones overlap with the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its ongoing war against Kiev. Pretoria has officially remained neutral on the conflict, refusing to condemn the Kremlin's invasion in a UN vote last year. But South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, says hosting Russian warships shows the ruling African National Congress, or the ANC, has chosen sides. Corbis Marais is the party's shadow defence minister. While our government has claimed to be neutral, is this just another of many incidents where the ANC has clearly exposed their favouritism towards Russia and has in fact done nothing but to showcase and prove government's lack of neutrality in this case. Marais says the South Africa of Nelson Mandela, once a beacon of democracy, risks losing its international standing by siding with what he calls the most despicable autocracies of the world. Moscow's invasion, the biggest in Europe since World War II, has been widely condemned internationally. Western governments have hit Russia with diplomatic isolation and heavy sanctions and have been supplying weapons to Ukraine to defend itself. Stephen Grust is head of the Russia-Africa program at the South African Institute of International Affairs. He says South Africa's hosting the drills risks its further isolation from the West while playing into Russia's hands. Russia is trying to indicate that it's not isolated internationally, that it has international military reach. And South Africa, by agreeing to hold these exercises or going ahead with them, is uh, feeding into that narrative that Moscow is putting out. South Africa's African National Congress Party has close ideological and historical ties to Russia under the Soviet Union, which backed its anti-apartheid struggle against white minority rule. South Africa and Russia are also members of the BRICS group of leading emerging economies, which includes Brazil, India and China. While many countries have shunned the Kremlin over its invasion, some nations, including those in BRICS, have not. Ukraine's ambassador to South Africa, Lubav Abravatova, was clear to VOA in her criticism of the scheduled military drills. And on uh, South Africa, China, Russia, military exercises... Let me just ask you what the army that is killing innocent people, the army of rapists uh, and murderers, uh, what can they bring to South African army as an added value? Some analysts say the world is in a new Cold War with authoritarian nations, China and Russia on one side and Western democracies on the other. This conflict is increasingly playing out in Africa as both sides scramble for influence on the strategically and politically important continent. South Africa's Department of Defense spokesman, Sapiwi Dalmini, tells VOA they will not reconsider the joint drills. I would like to repeat that the exercise will go ahead with the two countries in South Africa in February in relation to the military-to-military relations between these two countries and many others, which include the United States, where exercises have been held with each of those countries. Despite pressure from Western governments and visits last year by U.S. officials, Pretoria has continued to improve relations with Moscow. South Africa in December received a sanctioned Russian ship that officials say was delivering ammunition ordered before the Kremlin launched its invasion of Ukraine. 
South Africa's Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Naledi Pandor, will on Monday host Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. In August, South Africa will host the BRICS summit and has invited Russia's President Vladimir Putin to attend. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. In Senegal, two major traffic crashes in just eight days killed 62 people, reviving the question of road safety standards in Senegal and across Africa. The continent is home to the highest rate of road fatalities in the world. Experts blame a dangerous mix of poor infrastructure and driver education as well as low-quality imports, as Anika Hammerschlag reports from Dakar, Senegal. Rusted buses filter cars' roads at rush hour. Passengers hang off the back doors while teenagers on rollerblades cling to the sides, dodging horse carts and unpainted speed bumps. There are no traffic lights or stop signs. Cars have the right of way and pedestrians cross at high risk. Road conditions outside Senegal's major cities can feel even more dangerous, where packed buses barrel down two-lane potholed roads, the roofs piled with mountains of cargo and sheep. There are no medians or street lights, and farm animals roam freely into unchecked traffic. On Monday, it was a donkey that caused a public bus to swerve and collide with a truck in the country's northern region of Luga. 22 people were killed and 28 injured. Just eight days prior, 40 people were killed and about 80 injured in a crash in Senegal's southeastern Catherine region. A tire had burst, sending a passenger bus into the path of another oncoming bus. The government responded by banning night bus trips between districts and outlawed used tire imports. At 26.6 deaths per 100,000 people, Africa has the worst rate of traffic fatalities in the world, nearly triple that of Europe, according to a 2018 report by the World Health Organization. Christopher Cost is the Africa Program Director at the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy, an urban planning nonprofit. He says that in order to improve road safety, African countries need to shift public transportation business models. Because in so many African countries, we're still operating with the target system where driver incomes are directly related to the number of people they carry. And as a result, they rush as fast as possible to the destination. And that leads to a lot of the road safety challenges that we have. Switching to a salary system would incentivize drivers to drive safely instead of cramming their buses full and speeding to their destinations, Cost said. Carolyn Mimano is a partnerships manager, also with the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. Public transport could be further improved by limiting the age of buses, increasing bus inspections, and capping driver hours, she said. Within cities, governments have many options to improve safety. African city streets are shared by cars, pedestrians, cyclists, street vendors, and even horse carts. Yet planning efforts focus only on vehicles, Mimano said. Pedestrians in Africa represent 40% of all road traffic deaths, compared to 23% globally, according to the WHO. We still have a car-centric approach to transport planning. Even with road crashes, we think that the solution is to expand the road, and that doesn't really solve the problem. What actually happens is people speed more. Improvement is possible. Mamano points to Rwanda's capital, Kigali, which has speed cameras and salaried bus drivers, and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, which has elevated pedestrian crosswalks, wide sidewalks, and 21 kilometers of dedicated bus lanes. Nika Henry is the head of the United Nations Road Safety Fund. Africa and its development partners must prioritize road safety in their national budgets at a level that is commensurate to the burden and develop and implement national road safety programs in a way that engages all of the government, including health, transport, education, finance and trade sectors.
Senegal sees an average of 745 road fatalities per year, with most deadly accidents occurring at night, according to Senegal's Information Bureau. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. In South Africa, a tiger that escaped from a breeding farm and killed several animals and wounded a man was euthanized. The Bengal tiger named Shiba escaped Saturday from an enclosure at a private farm 30 kilometers from Johannesburg. The tiger roamed for four days before it was tracked by drones and a helicopter. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Nicole Beckford, and our engineer, Shogun Chong, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. <laughs>